This is The Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer, brand, and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company, Traub, to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer brand and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last few years, you will know that rental has become a very important part of the retailing industry. And there are only a few leaders in that field. And Christine Hunsicker, the CEO of Castle, is one of those thought leaders and trailblazers. And Castle Clothing as a Service, as the name is supposed to imply, really powers rental for many brands in our industry, ranging from department stores like Bloomingdale's to specialty stores like American Eagle, and even some premium luxury brands like Vince. And it's really interesting to hear everything that she has to say about where the industry is today and where it will be 10 years from now based on the changing and shifting desires of her consumer base. So stick around. Christine, thank you so much for joining us on the safari. I'm excited to be here. Well, very good. So for those who don't know what Castle is, uh, but who may know a lot about or be intrigued by the rental industry. Talk a little bit about what, what is Castle? How, how did you decide to get into this business? And, and from whence did you come? Uh, that's a, a pretty broad question. So Castle is a B2B technology and logistics platform that allows any brand um, or any retailer to enter into the rental subscription economy. It handles everything from the technology itself to the actual logistics um, and even handles things like customer service on behalf of the brands. All right. Is it loosely related to clothing as a service? Is that, is that it, it is exactly related to clothing <laughs> as a service, which is a play on software as a service, entertainment as a service, all these things that um, are moving to sort of fractional shared ownership. And what, what brought you into this industry? I have spent the last 18 years in B2B data and technology startups always industry agnostic, so one in uh, the reporting space, another in online advertising technology, one in bandwidth. So I don't come to apparel from the actual apparel side. <laughs> um, I come to it very from much. From the plumbing side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very much from a how can data and technology strengthen and improve an industry. Um, mm. And that's how I got into this. And so you actually began with Gwynny B, uh, which was, I think, and is a, a plus size um, um, platform uh, and which gave you sort of the the ability to learn and to to grow and and today you have i mean i'm i'm seeing the, this list now that is just remarkable and and taylor rebecca taylor new york and company obviously gwenny b vince express american eagle bloomingdales i mean the list is 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 wonderful um how has that skyrocketed over the last period i mean it feels as though rental in general relatively recently has uh, now been on the lips of many more people in the industry and obviously consumers. 
Yeah, all uh, uh, really rapidly growing trends feel like they happened overnight when in reality... Overnight success. Exactly. It's so easy. When, when in reality, it's been um, eight years in the making. Uh, when we first started, our idea uh, was this kind of model, this access model is really a complement to ownership. It's not going to replace it. People are still going to need to buy and own their basic staples and core but for the fashion items, the things that historically don't monetize well, that's what should be moving more into a rental economy. So we felt very strongly that this belonged plugged into a retailer because they're already making clothing for a different reason and they already have the consumers um, who are aware of their brand for a different reason. However, in 2011, we hadn't built anything. We didn't know if consumers would do this. We didn't understand the metrics that mattered. And we frankly weren't sure you could make money on this business. So we launched a consumer brand as our test case, mm -hmm. but with an eye towards and a goal towards really turning this into a B2B platform. So everything was built, built from the beginning to do exactly what we're doing today. Uh, Gwinny B was a very necessary jumping off place for us to really develop expertise. And how does it work from you know the brand's perspective now uh, who plug in with you and Talk through the flow from a consumer too. I mean, both of those different uh, participants in your business, as it were. Yeah, let's start with a consumer perspective first. So the consumer doesn't know Castle exists. Yeah. And I think this is a critical um, uh, business model point for us. We believe access um, is about strengthening the relationship between the brand and the consumer. The consumer spends 100 minutes a month on the site. Um, she's closeting over 250 items a year that she's interested in from the brand. She's getting at home about 100 of them. She's giving feedback on 95 of them, and she ends up wearing about 80 of them out of the house. That is brand immersion, um, and we don't want that happening with us. We believe this is about strengthening Banana Republic's relationship, mm -hmm. Express's, Lofts, you know, what have you. So from a consumer perspective, they're engaging in a Netflix-style rental model directly with the brand, and we're the behind-the-scenes operator of it. From the brand's perspective, what they, um, what they end up doing is sending us inventory. So they retain ownership of that inventory. We take physical possession, mm -hmm. um, and we bring it into the rental environment. And from that point, once we ingest the inventory, um, it stays within the castle ecosystem. So we're handling... Um, new arrivals processing, we're handling pickback ship, returns processing, laundry, um, inspections, restocking, customer service, all of the technology and the reporting that's needed to understand what's actually happening. Is there a terminal value or terminal amount of times that one can rent a garment? We look at things um, much like the car rental companies do, um, uh, where there is a useful life, right? And we're going to depreciate the asset over the useful life. We tend to see around a 12 to 15 month useful life of the garments, but that varies wildly depending on fabrication. So polysynthetics are, I mean, they're fire retardant. They'd survive the apocalypse. Mm. Um, so they'll last many, many more years than just 12 months, whereas silks and cashmeres are a little bit more delicate and have a, a shorter useful life. And, and so you also just recently added, I think, men's we as well. Did, How, yeah. How's that doing? Are, they, are the behaviors different with the guys in rental? So uh, we did um, a bunch of research about a year ago at this point um, on the men's market, because in theory, there are a lot of attractive things about the model and how it should uh, you know, be attractive to all of the stereotypes you think about men. 
One, you know, don't do laundry. Uh, we'll handle it all. Um, two, uh, don't pack a bag. Exactly. Um, you know, two, you're just kind of getting new things without having to do any of the work, right? So we thought it would have really great utility value, but because no one's really done it in the men's space before, we wanted to do a bunch of research. Um, what we found through that research was actually men are more likely to try a new economic model than women are. And if you think about who pioneered Netflix, who pioneered even like Ring and Nest and all of those things, it's usually led by, um, by men, and then it moves into mainstream. So while that shouldn't have been surprising, it was a little bit. Um, and then mm -hmm. we decided to launch with our first brand, which was Scotch and Soda in August, um, which is going really well. I would say the behavioral differences are men are a little bit stickier than women are. So when they find something, they're more likely to try it. Mm -hmm. They're very quick to abandon it if it doesn't work. What we're seeing through the data is this actually works really well um, for men. And so they end up being a little bit stickier than women are in the services. And so from the consumer perspective, they go on to... The, a branded website of the brand, yep. and they they interact how? How do they make the selections? So uh, in the case of Scotch and Soda, they have a site called Scotch Select, um, and it's their rental service for men. So um, you go onto the Scotch Select site, you'll see the entire collection that is available through rental, which is almost their entire uh, assortment. But structurally, it's the same as if it were a women's brand, the yep. way you select. Yeah? Yep, absolutely. Um, and you browse through new arrivals. You browse through the categories of clothing. You add to your closet the things that you're interested in. You prioritize a couple of the things that you really want. And then we're going to send uh, the consumer a box out of the items that they've selected. Mm -hmm. So... I find it quite, I was just telling uh, Kelsey and some of my colleagues before coming, it's quite rare to be able to sit with someone who has been one of the pioneers of a whole new channel of distribution. And, and that's sort of how we see uh, what you're doing in rental in general. I think historically brands would be concerned that it was somehow going to cannibalize uh, their business. But there are all these wonderful stories from the history of retailing whereby when you know a brand would open a store, like Ralph Lauren, for example, Marvin uh, was part of that, and Ralph would open a store, and the Bloomingdale's business would boom because it was like a billboard. And effectively, rental to me is yet another billboard. It's the media value of rental means that you'll also, you know, it's like a rising tide. Talk a little bit about how that message is actually landing. It sounds like it's landing because you've got all these brands, but is is that true? Um, is, it, is it a channel of distribution? So... The brand's number one concern very early on, um, and by the way, we only launched the platform 18 months ago. Um, mm. So all of this has happened yep. relatively, uh, relatively rapidly. The brand's number one concern has been cannibalization. With each um, brand that we launch, we get more and more data um, that disproves this fear of cannibalization. Because in reality, people are going to continue to buy basic staples and core. Mm -hmm. And that is what they are buying today. And uh, more importantly, it's what they're buying at full price today. So that behavior does not change one iota. What rental does is it provides a way for the consumer to continue to buy the basics, but now they're going to layer in and rent the fashion and the trend. So this is a, um, an expansion of share of wallet, not cannibalistic in any way. And we have data now from nine of our retailers that show... Uh, we are increasing the spend with a brand of around 200%. Mm -hmm. So people who were spending $200 a year the prior year are now spending $600 a year mm -hmm. with the brand across rental and retail. But also when you think about, you know, 
all the buzzwords of the industry today led for, by the digital native universe of of customer acquisition cost and lifetime value, which obviously one invented yesterday, but somehow everyone's talking about them now. Um, Thank God you, people are starting exactly, to talk about it. Exactly, of yeah. course. But you'd also think that rent was invented in Silicon Valley these days. Um, but I think that the idea that from a customer retention perspective, you actually have someone subscribing to be part of your life. I mean, it's 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 customer retention gold, right? One hundred percent. And I think more um, more interestingly, if you if you think about these mass market brands in particular, they actually have inherently very little brand loyalty, right? Whether you shop at brand A or brand B, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of whose window you're attracted to at that given moment, especially because you're going into that brand maybe twice a year, Mm -hmm. maybe buying three pieces of clothing a year. What rental does is it keeps you as a brand top of mind. So when the consumer needs a new pair of black pants, a new pair of denim, a new basic white t-shirt, they're going to buy it from you, who they're also renting from, because they're very comfortable with the fit. They're very comfortable with the style and you are top of mind. It is 100% creating the brand immersion that um, keeps the stickiness and the retention and therefore the revenue flowing through you as opposed to moving to one of your competitors. Yeah, but I often think also from a brand immersion perspective, Mm -hmm. right? When you think about the affection that a consumer has for a brand and frankly, they don't have the ability nor the disposable income to buy everything they see in the store. You often hear people say, I wish I could have bought everything. Now they can, in a way. They can experience everything. They'd have to buy it. And uh, it's it's just a way for, yet again, the brand to wash over their consumers, right? Yeah, and it creates a walking billboard, right, for the brand. So now instead of having a consumer own just one piece, you've got people walking down the street full head to toe in everything that your brand provides. So from a design perspective, from your creative director's perspective, the vision of the consumer and the lifestyle that they're trying to create is now actually realized through rental. We'll be right back. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage, and expand businesses in many different channels and geographies. We're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry, and it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. Back to the safari. Yeah, so we um, talked um, a lot about... um, how many brands have now come on in just 18 months. And one of the things that dawned on me is that at some point you might be able to stitch them all together into one marketplace. But what you have now done, which I find is absolutely fascinating, and we actually had the CEO of Bloomingdale's, Tony Spring, on here on the Safari two weeks ago. And he talked about the beginnings of how excited his team was and how he was about his partnership with you guys. So Bloomingdale's has launched with you um, Mm multi-brand. They're able to uh, the consumer is allowed to engage and able to engage across all or many brands, not all brands, but many brands that they have. Obviously, one of the other big um, players in this space is a multi-brand platform. So now you guys are as well uh, in this area. How has it been different? How, how, uh, what can you, um, it's early days, I know, but what's been different about interfacing with a multi-brand for your customers or for their customers and for, for you as well? I think that from the consumer's perspective, 
Department stores or multi-brand aggregators, as we think of them, have served and continue to serve a purpose of introducing people to many different brands, right? They have the ultimate in choice and variety and breadth of selection. And there is a class of consumer that continues to want that massive amount of choice and newness and variety. And we also run three other aggregators. So we run Gwinnibee, Haverdash, and we power um, the Stylist LA, which is a rental pure play who just recently moved on uh, to our platform. So we have four multi-brand aggregators. And we see there a consumer that's really looking for experimentation, really looking for trend and looking for newness and difference in her style. With the mono brands, what we see is somebody who gets very comfortable with the style and the fit of a particular brand and therefore is looking more for utility and consistency. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of this bifurcation that occurs within the consumer mind. And I think from a castle perspective, it's very important that we serve both types of consumers. Well, Mm -hmm. this is not a one size um, fits all retail has never been that will never be that. And so you want to be able to provide different experiences for different types of consumers and allow them to opt in to the kind of experience that is uh, creating the most value for them. So speaking about value across different classifications, uh, castle clothing as a service, have you started uh, working with other classifications of product beyond clothing? Not yet. Um, We are looking into a couple of other uh, classifications. Um, But right now, I think there's such a huge opportunity in apparel. I think that's the area of the retail economy that probably needs rental Mm -hmm. um, as a way to strengthen the overall business the most. So we think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there before expanding into other product categories. When I speak to uh, young people, call them below 30 years old, the idea of rental to them is just so obvious. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you speak to someone maybe over 40 years old, it starts to become less obvious. How have you felt... um, the fact that young people just get it, and is that true, by the way? And um, and how are older people coming into the ecosystem? I think it is a bit of a misconception to think this is a young person's game. Our data shows that a, um, a person who participates in one of our brands is between the ages of 25 and 55 and is significantly more biased towards the upper end than the lower end. I think the average mm-hmm. age is something like 41. Really? Yep. And one that could be a reflection of the brands that we have. But I think really when you think about what do you need to participate into a rental economy, you need the ability to pay for it. Yeah. Right. And women in particular start accumulating real wealth um, past their 30s. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the um, I think that's one of the determining factors. So it is this older millennial, younger Gen X, younger people uh, intuitively get it. Um, but a lot of them don't have the income. You need to be earning uh, across the board around 50K or more a year from a household income perspective. And then there's a service out there for you. Um, and so when you think about all the young people coming out of college, New York City being an exception. But if you think about all the young people coming out of college, it takes quite a while to build up the wealth given student loans, given everything else, so that you can kind of put that towards um, put that towards rental. So I think the sweet spot is much more in the mid to upper 30s into the mid 40s of rental. It's really interesting. Another misconception, I think, is the fact that um, people believe, or at least I hear it a lot, that there's a hygiene issue with rental. Uh, put that to bed for us. So um, not to disparage uh, all of our, our retail partners, but 
our clothing comes uh, fully cleaned, uh, fully inspected. It's just been cleaned and put in a box. And on average, it takes like four hours um, after cleaning to be shipped back out. What you try on in a store, what you get shipped to you from e-com is significantly uh, more unhygienic than what comes through rental. This is uh, by what measure? I just I'm fascinated. I mean, by the fact that it's come out of factories and not been cleaned. And I don't know if you visited many factories, um, but they are not hygienic (laughs) environments Uh, by the fact that other people with their um, uh, have had the clothing on in stores on their skin. Trying them out. Yeah. And put it back on the fitting room. Yeah. So the thing that you should do after you buy something right before you wear it, wash it. Very Mm -hmm. few people do that. But sitting in shipping containers coming from China for months on end with whatever kind of vermin come in through that, like rental is actually significantly more hygienic than anything you're getting in a retail environment. It is simply a stigma as opposed to uh, an actuality. So in in the world of of, um, minimalism and trying to everyone just trying to get out of hoarding and maybe the the Buddhist in us all is now uh, emerging, uh, sustainability and rental as a sustainable practice maybe, even though, you know, there's still a lot of shipping involved and, and, and dry cleaning presumably has chemicals involved, I don't know. But but the act of not buying and con- con- the consumption of and hoarding of things, mm-hmm. how does the philosophy of the new age that we're in, how's that helping your business? How do you use that uh, as a marketing tool, uh, or if at all? The sustainability angle in rental, I think um, someone needs to do a proper study. Right. Because as you pointed out, there are many different parts of the service that have various uh, environmental impacts. So what I can speak to um, are the following couple of points from a cleaning perspective. What we do is significantly better for the environment than what you do at home. Hands down. We use use significantly less water. Right. So um, we are your laundry at home uses a ton of water to um to clean things we use a fraction of the water in our cleaning operation than you use at home and that is a huge environmental hit from a dry cleaning perspective we don't use perk which is what your corner dry cleaner is using so even if you thought of i own dry cleaned clothing should i take them to the local dry cleaner or should i send them to castle what we're doing at castle is significantly better for the environment than what your corner dry cleaner is doing. They're cleaning in perk. We're cleaning in hydrocarbon. Mm. We don't clean in organic because it doesn't clean anything. Um, But what we do is better uh, from a cleaning perspective for the planet by far than what you're doing for the clothes that you own at home. That's one point. The second is um, from a manufacturing standpoint, I think what rental really allows for is every consumer to punch up one quality level. And as you move up the quality chain, you're moving out of the areas of clothing that are most harmful. Disposable. Yep. For the, for the, uh, for the environment. So I do think that there is a um, higher quality clothing is being made in slightly or much more sustainable ways, uh, depending on who's doing the manufacturing. But it is better than a lower class quality of clothing, which is probably where you have been spending your money previously. So I think from that perspective, and that's a huge environmental hit, um, from that perspective, it's more sustainable. Yes, there was an offset in shipping. Um, but I think when you think about what's happening in shipping versus what's happening in water consumption and then production of cheap disposable clothing being manufactured 
rental comes out to the positive. But somebody needs to do a full study. Yeah, I think, well, maybe we'll get Parsons to do that. We have to, I'll, I'll raise that with them. The um, interesting thing about what you just said regarding the cleaning, the, the, the efficiency of your cleaning versus domestic cleaning is I wonder whether your water filtration systems are, obviously, they must be more sophisticated than that in, in, in the domestic environment. Uh, because recently, for example, there was a study done that microfibers, mostly from synthetic uh, materials, coming as the runoff from the water in domestic uh, cleaning uh, facilities uh, is causing all of those microfibers to end up in the ocean. And they're now being found at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, etc. And it would be interesting uh, to look into, maybe you have, I don't know, but to see whether there's a way of getting those filters out of, or those microfibers filtered out of the water uh, excess that, that you use, which would add another element to that same that same issue. Yeah, that's a great point. So what is the what is the state of the industry from your from your vantage point? Obviously you're famously, and I'll say it, um, an incredibly bright woman. You're a leader of one of the most uh, innovative companies around as far as I'm concerned. Um, you're a, they call it maybe digital native is not the right word for you, but you're a new economy retailer. How do you see the industry, right? I, I'm always interested in people's um, views who aren't from this, this crazy tribe that is the retailing group. Um, you've come out of technology historically, obviously. Um, how do you find, what are the things that glare at you about, I wish they would understand this more? That's a difficult question to answer since we partner with all of the retailers. Um, I, I would say, look, I think, the biggest challenge that I see is that retailers actually do not have nearly enough data in order to make smart mm -hmm. decisions. That's a very good point. And, and the reason for that is that the transactional nature of traditional retail, right, where someone is literally the only data you have is did they buy it and yeah. return it or did they buy it and keep it? And they're not looking at customer cohorts, et cetera. Yeah. It, it's even beyond that. It's it's around they have so few interactions that they can actually even mm -hmm. capture data about to then do anything with. And where I see rental as extremely important for those, those retailers is opposed to getting three data points a year on the three items that a given consumer purchased, you're getting 250 data points on what they put in their closet, over 100 data points on what they got at home. You're getting garment level feedback on did it fit, did they wear it, if they didn't, why not, on about 95 of those. That amount of data actually now allows the retailer to do much smarter things with. And so I think everyone thinks that retailers are swimming in data. The reality is they may have a volume, but it's because they have a volume of consumers. They have no depth per consumer. So they actually don't understand any given consumer very well at all. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges facing them is how do they actually understand who their consumer is and what they want and in which way that do they want it. Mm -hmm. And this is where an access economy becomes so critical because it is a data generating machine. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably the, the biggest point for me. Everyone thinks they have a lot of data. They have none. Mm. And Today, you know, there's a few dozen uh, maybe brands that have come on in 18 months. What What is the, the the horizon or over the horizon look like for Castle? Are you trying to just sign up every brand in the world, or you do you do you, do you have a, a kind of brand that you're chasing? Not every brand in the world um, makes sense for us, but we are trying to sign up every brand that makes sense, and and there's about 70 that makes sense. 
Um, What do they look like? So they basically have, um, first and foremost, they have an assortment that is broad enough to capture a consumer's interest, right? So you can't be a small advanced contemporary brand that puts out 20 styles a season and think you're going to have people sign up for that, right? There's just not enough breadth. You, um, If you're that kind of brand, you belong playing uh, in the rental economy through an aggregator like a Bloomingdale's. Mm-hmm. But anybody who's producing, call it uh, 30 to 40 styles a month, base minimum, um, belongs having their own rental platform the same way they have their own e-com channel, right? This is just a, yet another direct-to-consumer channel for the retailers. So you need breadth of assortment. The next thing you need is a little bit of variety in that assortment. So Uniqlo does not make sense. Um, they have very few styles. They come in a ton of different colors. It's a great company. It's more basic. Yeah. Yep, but it's too basic oriented. So you need a little bit of a fashion element. You don't need to have like, quote unquote, New York style fashion. We're not talking about high fashion or um, fashionistas, but we're talking about a little bit of trend, a little bit of color, a little bit of print and pop. That is uh, items that people would want to rent as opposed to own. And then lastly, you need to have um, a price point that uh, can command at least 50 bucks on the rental service fee. And so there's a couple of very low-cost retailers. 50 bucks on the fee per month. Yes. There's a couple of low-cost retailers, like a Forever 21 uh, is a good example. Just doesn't make sense. No one's paying $50 a month to rent Forever 21 clothing when you can probably buy five pieces of clothing for that. And you can't uh, go any lower today because shipping costs money. So there has to be a certain threshold on fee in order to subsidize shipping. So coming back to the notion of software as a service, you're also presumably maybe not there yet, but I'm sure at some point you'll be able to turn around and and talk to the brands and say, hey, based on the data we're getting, we think you should start producing this product because it's going to sell and I can see it. You maybe can't see it yet, but I can see it. Or this style from a few years ago seems to be coming back because we're renting it in other brands. Has that started or is it too early? That started. Um, one great example of that is uh, when Loft decided to go into Plus, um, the way that they did it, and I give them a ton of credit for um, uh, thinking very innovatively about this, they actually debuted their Plus size line six months before they launched it um, through rental. Hmm. And they did it because what they were going to get out of that was within like three weeks or something, they had 10,000 data points from real consumers giving them feedback on the fit. And in the plus size world, right, fit is very difficult. Um, and it's a thing that a lot of straight size brands as they move into that um, into that size category screw mm-hmm. up because you can't just grade a pattern. And so what Loft did was they actually used the rental environment mm-hmm. um, in order to get a richness of data that they couldn't afford to do by just having fit models come in. Then they use that in order to effectuate change on their body blocks um, and to make certain styles a little bit deeper and shallow up on some other things. So we're seeing things like that happen today. One of my favorite expressions is the future is here, but unevenly distributed. And someone in your position um, is one of the you know, one of the catalysts of that expression, right? You're you're doing these things and many people don't know what Castle is, they don't know what your competitor is and Rental is foreign to them if they don't live in certain cities, but mm-hmm. presumably. If you fast forward 10 years from now, and you, you probably think spend a lot of time thinking about what the world will look like in this industry or the world in general of technology-driven, you know, we always talk about when will there be uh, uh, self-driving cars, who knows. How do you see, based on the, what you're experiencing, how will the consumer 
a behavior be down the pike 10 years from now? I think you've got um, probably at that point um, about 10 to 15 percent penetration from a rental perspective, meaning across all the rental services that are out there, you probably have about 20 to 30 million people renting. So if you think about the adult population in this country, yep, you think about the adult population uh, across men and women. I think rental hits about a 10 to 15% penetration rate. Um, these are people who will have a monthly service signed up with some rental provider. Um, that is a tremendous amount of um, revenue that has been created and generated by a new model. So Europe, uh, how, how does the amount of infrastructure you had to put in place here and then brain damage to explain to people why? I, I guess if you go elsewhere, there'll be less brain damage in that department because you've done it here. Yeah. But still, infrastructure-wise, can you go to Europe? Will you go to Europe without being on someone else's watch one day? Um, yes, we can. Yes, we will. And I think we have. I think the the challenging thing about going to Europe from a brand perspective is usually uh, you're you're basically starting from scratch, right? No one knows the brand. Blah 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 blah. From our perspective, um, on the B two B side, we'll be going to Europe with partners with brand partners who are already big in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, so I think our ability to quickly penetrate in Europe is uh, significantly de-risked relative to a B2C company. Western Europe has a lot of the same characteristics, consumption characteristics, consumer characteristics as the U.S. does. I think it's a no-brainer. I think the European market could actually eventually one day be larger than the U.S. market because you just have so many more people throughout the European block. Like 500 million people, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I think Europe's an absolute no-brainer uh, to to move into. From an infrastructure perspective, look, you've got you've got great infrastructure, you've got great roads and great shipping um, that happen in Europe. You have a little bit stronger EPA regulations. Good news is our cleaning passes European EPA regulations. Um, but in general, a lot of the uh, the things that you would worry about in more developing countries are already in place in in Europe. And so is that something you're going to do soon or is it still focus on what on, on the price here for the time being? Uh, for definitely the next 12 months, um, we are uh, focused on the U.S. We're starting to sort of explore um, Europe, but you don't pop that up overnight. <laughs> you certainly don't. And um, so the, based on, you know, I'd love to give you sort of a last word, as it were, on, on this. If there's messages or ideas or thoughts that people should be left with, given that the people who tend to listen to this are the leaders or uh, sort of senior management of various brands, um, about why sign up? I think um, the biggest thing for people to understand is this is an actual loyalty program that actually works. So um, if you think about what a lot of brands have done through their general uh, loyalty programs and their private label credit cards, all they're doing is giving a discount to people who don't need it. They've been proven not to work. This is an actual loyalty program that increases spend with a brand and that keeps a consumer stickier. And that's the way everyone should be thinking about this. If you want real loyalty out of your consumers, you need to give them a reason to be with you day in and day out. And that loyalty is uh, sort of a tribal uh, sort of connector with all of someone's clients. So it's a, it's a bit of a flywheel. So I think it's wonderful what you're doing. I'm thrilled to have had a little bit of time to talk to you about it. And thank you so much for doing the safari. Thank you. It's been great. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io, where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. 
If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it. Until next time.